0: Welcome back to the Justice Gap podcast, a new regular series of interviews and stories from those at the sharp end of fighting injustice. Before we get into this week's interview, I just wanted to ask a quick favour. If you find these conversations interesting, then please tell your friends, colleagues and family to listen and share. And please rate us if your podcast app allows it. The stories we will cover need to be heard and you can help by simply sharing. I think when you hear from today's guest, you'll agree. This and the previous episode focus on the so-called spy cop scandal. We are now in between stages of the undercover policing inquiry that is seeking to, quote, get to the truth about undercover policing across England and Wales since 1968. I spoke to two core participants who themselves were victims of unjustified state surveillance, both with very different stories to tell of how undercover policing has affected them. In last week's episode, we heard how undercover police degraded a grieving and campaigning mother in Sukhdev Reel, This week, you'll hear from Dave Smith about how undercover police spied on union reps and colluded with multinational construction firms to ensure that they weren't employable, a practice known in the industry as blacklisting. Dave starts with a simple explanation of what blacklisting looks like in practice. So my name's Dave Smith. My
1: background is I'm a construction worker. I worked on building sites as soon as I left school. Every male member of my family works on a building site. And after a few years, I became a, a union activist and a, an health and safety rep. And uh, and almost instantaneously, even during the middle of a building boom, all the work sort of dried up. And, and although everybody else was working in the middle of the building boom and, you know, buying himself new cars and driving off, you know, taking the family off to Disneyland. Suddenly I couldn't get a job anywhere. And even if I did get a job within a few weeks, I'd just be sacked normally for nothing, you know. And it was just very, very obvious that we were being blacklisted you know because of because I was a union activist, it was a
0: pretty obvious, so that, that was the reason I was being sacked so so before before we get into the specifics for anyone who doesn 't know what blacklisting is as a practice could you could you quickly explain it in as simple terms as you as you could
1: yeah so when we, when it was just anecdotal, the authorities always used to just dismiss it as that, like we were conspiracy theorists or we are just making this up but then in in two thousand and nine the Information Commissioner's Office did a raid on an organisation in the Midlands called the Consultant Association, and when they got there, they found these documents that all of the big construction companies kept on union activists, like secret documents, basically, about activists. And if you think your name's on this list, because ICO is a government department, you can apply and get a copy of your own file. So all the union people who were (laughs) out at work a lot got a copy of their own file, and some of the files go back to the 1960s you know, some of, the, some of the files are like 50 pages long. And it's basically every time you've worked on a building site, if you become elected as a shop steward, or you complained about unpaid wages, or if you're in a dispute about health and safety, that was just recorded on your file. And, and basically these files were kept as like a centralized database. And every time any worker applied to get a job on a on a big major building site, Everyone who applies to get a job on their projects is checked against this list. And if your name comes up, you're either sacked or you don't get, re- you don't get the job in the first place. And, and the companies who are doing this are like Sir Robert McAlpine, Skanskas, Belfort, BE, Carillion. All of the big multinationals were involved in this. So, so, so this was a pretty widespread operation then. Oh, God, yeah. Let's take the Olympics, for example, because the Olympics was the year that the Consultant Association was closed down. So Sir Robert McAlpine Limited were building the Olympic Stadium at the time. And every time they checked a name on the list, it cost them £2.20. And the last invoice was for £28,000. Wow. So this isn't a couple of managers having a chat with people in the pub after work. (laughs) So if if I'm...
0: Sorry, if I'm, sorry just, just, to, just to be completely clear, so if, if you're uh, a construction worker and you raise a complaint about a health and safety hazard on site, and perhaps you speak to a union rep, do you think that would be, you would be marked down on the, on the blacklist for that, that kind of behaviour? Is that what you're saying?
1: Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Some of the stuff that's on there is just ridiculous. What would happen is a manager on the building site would pass the information up to the director And then the director would pass it on to the, uh, the directors are called like main contacts for the, for the Consultant Association, but it's basically whatever a manager on a building site thought was relevant. So there's one of my friends, George Fuller, he's a bricklayer. One of the things on his blacklist file was that he was doing a petition in the site canteen against homelessness. So he's literally doing a petition against people being homeless and that we should build more housing. And a manager has thought that's, you know, sinister enough to send up information and that appears on his blacklist file. One of the people on their file said he wore an anti-Nazi league badge and was assumed to be a sympathizer. It's like, literally, you're meant to be (laughs) (laughs) anti-Nazi. If he wore a swastika, I could understand it, but he wore an anti-Nazi league badge And that was enough to get him reported and his name to be put on the blacklist.
0: And can you tell me about your file?
1: Yeah, my blacklist file starts in 1992. And the very first thing on my file is the fact that I was involved in a dispute over several weeks unpaid wages. So literally people hadn't been paid. The cheek of it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And so because because there was a dispute about unpaid wages, that was enough to get me on the blacklist file. And then after that, pretty much every every job I had in the in the next 10 years was recorded on my file. Really? Yeah, and I was just sat repeatedly. So, And, you know, I'm not the worst. Far, far from it, there are people who mm. treated much worse than me. But, you know, it's, there are 3,200 files that they found. You know, as I said, some going back to the 1960s. This is systematic, industry-wide blacklisting by multinational corporations. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Can you... Tell me about the effects that this practice of blacklisting um, can, can have on an individual.
1: Well, that's, that's really the, the rub of it. Because if all they were doing was keeping files on you, it's a bit creepy, but so what? You know? mm. But what they're actually doing is stopping you getting a job you know, what they're actually doing is stopping me paying my mortgage, you know, stopping stopping other people, you know, sending their kids on school trips and that kind of stuff. If if every other builder you know is earning loads of money and has got work coming out of their ear holes and, and you can't get a job or you can't hold down a job for more than two or three weeks and, and suddenly you're defaulting on your mortgage when everyone else is, you know, as I said before, buying a bigger house or buying a big car. Then inevitably, that leads to tensions in the families, and people have got divorced because of this. You know, the kids don't go on school trips, the kids don't get the new trainers. You know, some of the some of the wives and the partners of blacklisted workers have talked about having to have two or three jobs in order to pay the bills. This is in a building boom, in the middle of a building boom. I, I I worked on the um, I worked on the Jubilee Line extension in the late nineteen nineties. While I was working there, there was a dispute about health and safety on the the job. At London Bridge Station, there was a fire alert and all of the workers working underground never got evacuated because there was no fire alarms down there. So there was a bit of a dis... I mean, this was literally only a, a year or so after the King's Cross fire. So right. it was like, you know, you know, fire on the underground was like a big thing in everybody's mind at the time. And so the workers said, well, we shouldn't be down there without fire alarms. Why are they not working? There was a bit of a dispute. All of those workers who were involved in that dispute got put on the uh, blacklist. And and some of the workers involved in that dispute have ended up committing suicide. You, you know, <laughs> No one's saying that just being on the blacklist is enough, you know, you know, no one can say that's the sole reason. But long periods of unemployment, family tensions, when other people are doing well, can't be good for anybody's mental health. And, you know, you've got to see this as a contributory factor for, for suicides. But also, um, if, if, if the big construction companies are deliberately sacking and deliberately victimising union safety reps who by law are meant to have legal protections to raise concerns about health and safety, and they're getting sacked, and everybody working on the building site can see they're getting sacked, then that sends out a message to everybody else as well. Shut your mouth or you'll be sacked. And you end up with a situation where there's this sort of climate of fear where people are a bit you know get up that scaffolding even though it looks unsafe oh there's only asbestos just chuck it in the skip and if you complain about it you'll be sacked and and that's one of the reasons why the construction industry's got the worst fatality rate than any other sector in in the British economy you know over year after year after year because the big multinationals who are meant to be the setting the standards have historically specifically victimize people who've raised concerns about health and safety
0: you know so so this kind of small action well small action it's obviously a big big action but essentially it's it's a kind of profit driven i assume profit driven action which is let's make sure people who are kicking up a fuss costing us as the construction company lots of money let's make sure they're they're discouraged from doing so and unhirable that has wide implications for health and safety because it's not just them who are perhaps putting off complaints there's also people who maybe aren't union reps who would say something previously now they're not because they're seeing colleagues being sacked for doing so and it's and then so it's just it's it's such a scandalous practice really and it's such a dangerous practice I, I want to move on to talking about finding out that the state was almost colluding, like, colluding, I guess, is the, is the right word, in, in this practice of blacklisting. Firstly, how did you find that out? Uh, and then what was that like?
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, 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 that, that a big employer, you know, didn't like me, I get because you're absolutely right. What I'm doing by being a safety rep, by being a union rep, is trying to get my members better pay and a safer workplace. It's going to cut into their profit margin, obviously. So I understand why a big employer might potentially uh, not like. I don't think I'm doing anything illegal. <laughs> I'm standing up for what you're told to do, but nonetheless, if you do it efficiently, you're you're probably going to reduce the amount of profit the company's going to make. So so I get why they might not might not like me, but. None of us, when we started off, thought that the police would be involved, but they are. That's, that's the beginning and the end of it, they are. How we found out, almost by luck, than you know, more, more by luck than anything else, uh, my case was against Carillion, and the, the Information Commissioner's Office had got documents about me and documents about Carillion, which we wanted to see at the court case. So we got a, what was called a third-party disclosure order to go and see the documents. And when I saw that, basically, I was allowed to sit in front of every single blacklist file and and read all the blacklist files. And it's just instant. You can just see stuff on it where it's, you know, how on earth would any manager ever know that? You know, because the main way that the information gets on there is that it comes from a man. You know, as I said, if I complain about asbestos and that's on my file, I know that a manager on a building site has told that to someone that's on my file. But there was information about when people were leaving the country, who they were visiting. There's an example where it appears on three people's, free blacklisted workers' blacklist files, where it says, in November 1999, these three workers were observed by the police on a uh, counter-demonstration against the fact that the National Front lay a reef at the Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. And you have to literally say, well, how would, how would a manager on a building site so know that? You know, that's just literally tell me how a manager in a building. I was just passing by and happened to see these free, these free construction works and think, oh yeah, no, oh, no, they're on the counter demonstration. Pass. And in fact, we put in a complaint to the police, and the police set up their own internal investigation about the police involvement in blacklisting. It's called Operation Reuben, And Operation Reuben basically says, yes, on the day, these three workers were observed by the police and that information was put onto their special branch file on the same day. And literally one or two days later, it appears on... The blacklist file. So when we started off, it was a bit like that. But as we've gone on and gone on, we found out even more. Uh, around the same time, in the uh, sort of late nineteen nineties, there was a carpenter who I knew. He was a member of Hackney branch of UCAT. His name, when I knew him, his name was Mark Cassidy. He uh, he turned up on picket lines with me. I've been to meetings with him. Because health and safety is such a big issue in in the construction industry, there are lots of rank and file safety campaigns. One of them, Mark Cassidy, was actually the chair of the safety campaign and used to write letters out to various union branches on behalf of the, the safety. His real name was Mark Jenner, and he was an undercover police officer from a police unit called Special Demonstration Squad. And he was deployed in East London for five years, and during that five years, he was a member of Hackney branch of UCAT, the Construction Workers Union. His union subs were paid for by a bank account set up by a special branch. He lived with a uh, National Union of Teachers activist, a, a woman called Alison, for five years. They're going to have kids together. They went on holiday together, you know, uh, around the world. Um, in truth, he was an undercover police officer and he was already married with kids when he was, when he was living with Alison. Basically, it was spying on trade unionists. You know, I mean, they can dress it up all they like. If you, if Special Branch set up a bank account and you join a trade union, you turn up to meetings, you turn up to picket lines and conferences and that. And this is spying on trade unionists for being for being trade unionists. You know, and and this is what the state does. The state isn't neutral. You know, it was like, seriously, you know, this is an illegal blacklist and the police should be shutting it down. What they're actually doing is colluding with it.
0: I mean, obviously, you'll have have heard this kind of point before. Police will spy and and there's probably a, a, a perfectly good reason often to spy on certain people to make sure they have good intelligence and good data on perhaps dangerous individuals and groups. I, I, I want to know what at what point does it cross that line from legitimate spying and, and surveillance? The,
1: the, the, the difficulty I've got with that, with, with that is, a, is a question. Is, is it exactly is the way the police present it? is the police present it as what they're doing is they're spying on people who's going to cause public disorder or you know terrorism and, and that kind of stuff. And yet you see the list of the groups that they've spied on. They've spied on Labour MPs, they've spied on anti-apartheid, they've spied on Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, they've spied on the Women's Liberation Movement, they've spied on trade unions. You know, they're, they're, you know this, this is not spying on Terrorists. This is not spying on people who are planting bombs. There are other departments, there are other police departments that do that. What this is, is gathering intelligence, gathering intelligence on people that the upper echelons of the British security services and the British political policing units consider to be a problem you know you've you've spoke to sukteg real you know the, the mother of ricky real you know a, a young asian student who was murdered by racists and the police were spying on her family i mean there there reaches a point where the police you know the police justification for this just doesn't hold up you know this is political policing if this was going on in any other country around the world, the BBC would be talking about secret political policing units spying on dissidents.
0: I, 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 think, I think you struck on an important point, which is, you know, that the right to protest and organise politically and within unions, that, that's vital to a democracy do you feel like they were they were attempting to take that right away from you or actually did in some cases oh i
1: don't think there's any doubt about it at all you know the 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 police the police justification for all of this is what they were doing is defending democracy okay if you're spying on trade unionists and passing information about trade unionists to big business, you're not defending democracy, you're defending capitalism, (laughs) you're defending big business. You know, that's what you're defending and capitalism and democracy are not the same thing. That's the important point we all need to remember. We've got a democratic right to protest, You've got a democratic right to be a member of a trade union. It's not against the law to be a member of a trade union. It's not against the law to be a left-wing member of a trade union. It's not even against the law to be a left-wing member of a trade union who organises industrial action. All of that's perfectly legal. But according to the lawyers acting on behalf of the Metropolitan Police, then if you... uh, use, you know, industrial means to that, that could have a negative impact upon the British economy, then that makes you a, a subversive. This is just paranoia, but it also is what the
0: British state does. And so finally we're into the inquiry into undercover policing. Are you seeing what you want to be seeing from that inquiry?
1: We are getting more and more stuff come out. We are finding out more and more stuff. And that the internal police investigation that I talked about, Operation Rubin, that has already written down in a written report that was given to the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, which we've now got a copy of, that literally says the accusation that police and special branch and security services gave information to the blacklisting and organisations is proven you know that's the police's own internal investigation says it's proven we know it happens we're just trying to expose it
0: to public scrutiny really and is that for you is that a would that be seen as a success of the inquiry we're not i don't
1: think any of the core participants none of the non-state non-police core participants all of us who've actually been Targeted by the undercover police, none of us think we're going to get justice. No, literally, I don't think. I don't think I've had a conversation with anyone who's under any illusion whatsoever. This is we're going to shake the tree as much as possible and see what falls out. And if enough falls out that it makes the mainstream media and it makes the TV news and all the rest of it, then hopefully that point where people say stuff like that doesn't happen in this country, that that fairy tale will be done away with forever, you know, and it will just be impossible for anybody to say that it doesn't happen because it, we just want it to be mainstreamed, that we know what the police are getting up to, you know? They, they're literally, they're acting like the Stasi. That's thats the point. The media would be all over it, you know, if it was the Stasi. But when it's happening in Britain, it's almost like they've <laughs> got a blind spot. Most of the mainstream media are basically turning a blind eye to
0: it. Thanks for listening to the Justice Gap podcast. It was produced by me, Callum McRae, and the theme music was made by Oscar Ralph. Again, please subscribe, rate us if your podcast platform allows it, and please, please share among your friends.